0: Okay, good morning to everyone. Okay, it's really good to see all of you here. Um, I hope that you are come with great expectation to listen to God's word, so let's bow our heads in prayer. Dear Fathers, we come before you today. We pray that as we look at the life of David, as we see his faith in you, as we reflect on ourselves and the principles that holds for us, that we will really look deep into your word, and that the Holy Spirit will guide us to teach us what it means to be your people in this world. We pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Waiting. Anybody here like waiting? No, right? We don't like waiting. Uh, It's one of the hardest things to do actually. Waiting. I remember watching uh, some things on television and they had this, uh, uh, this experiment where they got these little children and they put a chocolate cake right on the table and sat them in front of it and told them to wait. And when they came back, Uh, when the guy came back, they could come eat the cake. Uh, Unfortunately, three out of the four children couldn't wait to eat the cake. And I remember a survey was done as well, where I actually found that for some people, I don't know, maybe you can ask yourself this question, they would rather prefer to receive bad news than to wait to find out whether there was good news or bad news. So waiting was so intolerable that it was much more preferable for these people to receive bad news, certain bad news, than to wait to find out whether there was good news or bad news. So I guess waiting is hard. Waiting is hard for everyone, whether it's little children or adults. And I think that as Christians, uh, it's hard for us to wait as well. And I think that as we look at this quite short and simple passage today, really the major theme is about waiting. Now we come to uh, chapter 24, and uh, it says there that Saul had returned from pursuing the Philistines, and he was told David was in the desert of Engedi. So Saul took 3,000 able young men from all Israel and set out to look for David and his men near the crags of the wild goats. Now, again, uh, it's really helpful to have a map. And uh, (coughs) if you look up here, last week uh, we saw that David was actually trapped here uh, in the desert of Okay, And um, uh, as we've seen, you can see all these numbers here, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, whatever. David is sort of being chased all over Israel, all over, out to Moab, all, all over, out to Philistines. Uh, in, in many ways, as you read through the whole of uh, 1 of this part, David is a bit like a cockroach, you know? You know that like cockroach, right? You sort of chase them all over the kitchen, you try to kill them, they go to one corner, then you set traps for them, whatever. And I think that that's how David feels. He feels like this cockroach. And he's sort of chased all over the place, and last week he was in the desert of Moab, and now he finds himself in this place called the Engedi. Okay, or I don't know how you pronounce Engedi. I don't know how Andrew pronounced it, but it's different for me. Engedi. Okay. Now, if you uh, look up here in this picture, I've actually managed to find a picture of uh, what Engedi looks like. Okay, this is in my uh, lion dictionary of uh, the Bible or something. And this is actually what the Engedi is. So the Engedi actually is a is a place filled with hills. Okay, this is a hill here. But the advantage is that there's lots of fresh water because it actually, uh, I don't know, it's, it's just got lots of fresh water, so it's really helpful for David and his men. But unfortunately, as we saw on the map before, it, it, it was actually a very poor location for David to be seeking refuge because he was trapped with the dead sea behind him, he was out in the mountains, and as we read now, David and his 3,000 able soldiers were all down there looking for him. So as David wakes up, he, he looks out from the cave where he is. He sees uh, King Saul and his men approaching, and it's really quite a desperate situation. Uh, the other situations are by by no means not desperate; they were all very desperate. But here it seems like he was really trapped in a corner. Okay, now I remember last week, he you know there was a chance he could have escaped because you know he was on the mountain. There was in the desert. He was being encircled, but the Philistines came. But this time, it seems like there is no relief from the Philistines. They are far away from Philistine territory. Dead sea behind them is up on the hill. All around them are David's soldiers. Now, one of the good things as we've seen as we've been looking at 1 Samuel is that uh, David records in the book of Psalms, or David is recorded by the psalmist, at various times praying to God uh, with regards to the situation. And here, uh, we have two Psalms, Psalm 57, and Psalm 142, which many commentators say uh, really relates to this time in David's life. So Psalm 57, uh, you can read it for yourself. If you've done the Bible study, you'll see that you'll be going through it. David prays to God, right? and we know that he's in this situation because it's a little note, when he had fled from Saul into the cave. I am in the midst of lions. I lie among ravenous beasts, men whose teeth are spears and arrows and whose tongues are are sharp sharp swords. So, he feels that all around him, uh, the men are around him with spears and arrows, and they're like lions waiting to pounce on him, and to devour him, and to kill him. In Psalm 142, again, um, it says there when David was in a cave, and we we, we don't really have that many times where David's in a cave, so this is probably this situation. He cries out to the Lord, I cry to you, O Lord, I say you are my refuge, my portion, the land of the living. Listen to my cry, for I am in desperate need. Rescue me from those who pursue me, for they are too strong for me. Set me free from my prison, that I may praise your name. You see, he, he looks out and, and the force in front of him is too powerful for his 600 men. Remember, he's got 600 people following him, but they're not soldiers, they're just discontented people. Right? He sees himself like in a prison. So they're praying and praying for some relief. And what happens? Well, verse 3, King Saul came to the sheep pens along the way, and a cave was there. And Saul went in to relieve himself. David and his men were far back in the cave. The men said, This is the day the Lord uh, spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. Now, (coughs) God again works this marvelous miracle. King Saul, uh, if you look at the picture, the next picture again, Oh, okay. imagine the picture we saw, right? So, King Saul and the men come to the plains and David is up in the hillside, uh, in the cave. So, uh, yeah, so you imagine, okay, imagine the, 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 the soldiers are all down here and Saul maybe had too much uh, laksa or curry the night before and he has a stomachache. So what he really needs now is privacy. Even though he's king, he needs privacy. And you can see, imagine the hill is there and, and the sheep pens are in the open country. So he can't really find privacy to do what he needs to do. Okay? So he sees and looks up and there, up quite a distance, is a cave. So he grabs his straight times, makes his way up to the cave. Okay. And, uh, you know, he's going up there by himself. He doesn't invite his soldiers to go out him, okay? These are not ladies at a dinner party, all right? He's going up there by himself, and he goes into this cave. And as we know, God has arranged it so that when he goes into the cave, it's exactly the same cave that David and his men are taking shelter in. You can almost hear... David's men breaking into the songs. This is the day, this is the, Lord, the day that the Lord has made, right? We will rejoice and be glad in it. And the reason why they're so happy uh, is because they sort of changed the lyrics and they've said, This is the day that the Lord has given Saul into our hands. Now, technically, that's not really quite right, isn't it? It's a very liberal interpretation of what we've read over the last few weeks because if you go back to the slide um, in chapter 23. God had actually given the Philistines. He had consistently given the Philistines into David's hands, but he had never given King Saul into David's hands. So you can go back and read it for yourself. those were the Philistines who were the enemies of David, but never King Saul himself. Now, God never said to King Saul, as sorry to David, that I will give you King Saul, and you are to kill him." So as he has this great opportunity, his men are egging him on, and what does David do? Then David crept up unnoticed and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Afterward, David was conscious stricken for having cut off a corner of his robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do such a thing for my master, the Lord's anointed, or lay my hand on him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. And with these words, David sharply rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went on his way. Now, as we say when we look at the, the narratives, especially in 1 Samuel, we must always pay attention to the surprises. What a surprise this would be. If you were one of David's men, you see David uh, slip away with his super sharp sword. Okay. Uh, for all you know, it's still the, it may be Goliath's sword that he inherited from, uh, from before. And he comes back, and instead of carrying the head of Saul, or coming back and saying that he had killed Saul... He comes back with this piece of cloth and say, "Hey guys, I got a corner of, of Saul's robe." And not only that, it's really surprising because as we as we see here, David was conscience stricken in verse five, not just because he he didn't kill, Saul, he didn't like feel oh I'm conscience stricken because I didn't I missed this opportunity to kill Saul. He was conscience stricken because he cut a corner. Of his role. So the question we have to ask ourselves is, why did David react this way? Why was he so conscience-stricken that he cut the corner of the robe? Why did he not kill Saul when he had the chance? Well, the answer is very clear, isn't it? In verse 6 he said, The Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or to lay my hand on him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. You see, David might not like Saul. David might not respect Saul. But because of David's relationship with God, he will not kill the Lord's anointed. Neither will he do anything to dishonor him. And I think that's why I've reflected on it a bit. Why David felt so bad about cutting off a corner of the robe. Now, as we've been uh, going through Samuel, you notice the robes. The robe is very meaningful or has some sort of symbolic meaning uh, in 1 Samuel. Okay, because uh, earlier on, remember Jonathan gave uh, David his robe. Right? And we said that symbolically it, 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 it's the passing on of the kingdom. Now, if you look at me to chapter 15, just turn back in your Bibles. I haven't flashed it up for you because uh, I want you to learn how to look at, in your Bibles. But if you look at chapter 15, verse 27, <coughs> it said, as, as Samuel turned to leave, Saul caught hold the hem of his robe and it tore. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to one of your neighbors, to one who is better than you. So, as we've been looking through uh, Samuel, the idea of robes and uh, you know, the giving of kingdoms and things like that seems to be part of the symbolism of 1 Samuel. So I think that even though when uh, David cut off the corner of uh, Saul's robe, I don't think at that point in time he was really thinking, okay, this is, this is symbolically what I'm trying to do. But in a sense, he was actually taking a piece of the royal robe for himself. He was taking the initiative to take what he shouldn't take. And I think that's why he felt so conscience-stricken, because of the symbolism of what he had done. He had cut a corner of the royal robe for himself. But in David's mind, it was never his place to take the kingship away from Saul, even symbolically. That's why he said in verse 5, The Lord forbid that I should do such a thing, to kill Saul, or to lay a hand on him, or to take the kingdom for myself. Now, Saul finishes his business, uh, totally unknown to him. And he walks down from the cave, down to the sheep pens, to where his soldiers are. So you imagine the scene, okay? So David walked down quite a distance. All his men are down there. And David takes quite a bit of a risk, isn't it? Uh, David walks out of the cave and exposes himself. It's a very big risk. Because Saul at this point in time can call all the soldiers and come back and attack him and he's trapped in the cave with the 600 men. But, David does what he has to do. And that day, David went out of the cave and called out to Saul, My Lord, the King. When Saul looked behind him, David bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. He said to Saul, Why do you listen to men to when men say, David is bent on harming you? This day you have seen with your own eyes how the Lord delivered you, delivered you into my hands in the cave. Some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not lay my hand on my Lord, because he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, look at this piece of your robe in my hand. I cut off the corner of your robe. But I did not kill you. See that there is nothing in my hand to indicate that I am guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I have not wronged you, but you are hunting me down to take my life. May the Lord judge between you and me. May the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me. But my hand will not touch you. As the old saying goes, from evil doers come evil deeds. So my hand will not touch you. Against whom has the king of Israel come out? Who are you pursuing? A dead dog, a flea. May the Lord be our judge and decide between us. May he consider my cause and uphold it. May he vindicate me by delivering me from your hand. Now, I want you to put yourself in David's shoes. And here is King Saul, who's been pursuing you unjustly, who's been trying to stab you with his spear when you're playing the harp for him, who has killed Ahimelech and 85 of the priests of Israel. But yet, David comes out, he bows before uh, Saul, he puts his face to the ground before Saul. It is a total picture of absolute respect and honor. Not because David respects Saul as a person, but he respects Saul as God's anointed king. And that's the most important thing, isn't it? Because in David's mind, God has appointed Saul king. So he will not hurt Saul or he will not kill Saul. And that's why he says to Saul, I'm totally innocent of wanting to harm you." In fact, he goes on in verse 14 to say, Who are you pursuing? A dead dog, a flea. Now, a dead dog cannot hurt you. Because it's dead, right? A flea, yeah, maybe it give you bubonic plague or something. But generally, a flea cannot hurt you, and that's what David saying. No, David, remember who David was. David was the one who defeated Goliath. He was renowned among the Philistines as the commander who killed the most Philistines. But David says to Saul, "I am to you like a dead dog, a flea, not because I cannot hurt you." but because I will not hurt you. Because God has appointed you king, God has anointed you king, and I, I, it is not my role to take away that kingship from you, or to kill you. And that's why verse 12 and verse 13 is seen by many commentators as a key verse that basically sums up the whole of chapter 24. May the Lord judge between you and me. May the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me. But my hand will not touch you. As the old saying goes, From evil doers come evil deeds, So my hand will not touch you. From David's perspective, God has given Saul the kingship. It is up to God to take it away. And he will not step in and exercise revenge or his own justice or or to do return evil for evil. But he will leave the judging up to God. Now, I think that uh, when we see this, we see that David has great faith in God. Imagine with one stroke of the knife, he could end it all. He could be king there and then, he could stop running forever, but he's willing to wait God's justice because he recognizes that this is not part of God's plan that he should take the sword up against the God's anointed now the last part is a bit controversial I remember I've been many Bible studies and, uh, and when David had finished saying this Saul asked is that your voice David my son and he wept aloud you are more righteous than I he said you have treated me well but I have treated you badly you have just now told me about the good you did to me. The Lord delivered me into your hands, but you did not kill me. When a man finds his enemy, does he not let him get away un, uh, unharmed? May the Lord reward you well for the way you treated me today. I know that you will surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hands. Now swear to me by the Lord that you will not kill off my descendants or wipe out, wipe out my name from my father's family. Now, I know that uh, in both the Bible studies I was in, uh, a lot of people say, wow, you know, this Saul is a very drama king, right? Because when you look at all the other previous chapters, uh, King Saul cannot even bring himself to mention the name David. Uh, it's like, you know, he starts with the son of Jesse. Always son of Jesse, never David. But here, it's like he suddenly says, oh, David, my son. David, my son. He weeps. He cried out. He wept aloud. Now, how are we to understand Saul here? Is it a put on? Is it something that he dramatizes? Is, uh, you know, why is he like this? Now, I think if I've, I've been reflecting on it for quite a while. And I think that it is a real reaction by Saul. He's not acting. He's not putting it on. But, But Saul is really struck at this point in time by the righteousness of David. By the mercy of David. By the goodness of David. You see, if you you look at what he confesses, he says in verse 17, the first words he says are, you are more righteous than I. So if you look at all the other previous chapters in 1 Samuel, David is a threat to Saul because he's a great warrior a mighty warrior. Remember the song Saul has killed, you know, killed his thousands but David has killed his tens of thousands. So Saul has always regarded David as a great warrior and he's threatened by it. But I think that as you come to this point in time Saul actually says for the first time as we've seen coming out of his mouth that David is not just a better warrior but he is more righteous. He is a better man. He is a closer man to God than Saul ever was. And that's why he says, look, does a man ever let his enemy go right, when he gives him a chance to kill him? Saul is saying, look, if I was in that shoes, I would have not let David go. But David is a better man than me. He's a righteous man. He, he was willing to let God judge rather than do evil in his own hands. Remember, this is Saul who had no problems killing 85 Priests, 85 of God's people. But yet, David could not bring himself to raise the sword against God's anointed king. And I think that that's why Saul reacted this way, because he was really touched. He was really impressed by the righteousness, the righteousness of David. And that's why he says that surely you will be king. The kingdom of Israel will be established in your hands, not because you're a better warrior but because you are a righteous person after God's heart. David was willing to wait, to wait even in unjust suffering because he trusted in a judging God. Now I think that as uh, we look at this passage, we find it hard to sort of bring it back from that time of David's time to ourselves today. What, what has it got to do with us today? What happened between David and Saul then? Well, I think the first thing that we uh, really have to notice is that the theme of Waiting for God in unjust suffering is actually a theme which points forward to Jesus. See, you notice Jesus lies in the Gospels. Jesus is willing to suffer unjustly. He's the unjust sufferer because, and part of it is, he's waiting for God to do the judgment in the future. So, Matthew chapter 26, if you look up here in this passage, and uh, in, in the Isaiah passage, Um, When the soldiers come for Jesus, to bring him to the cross, to crucify him unjustly, and to persecute him unjustly, Jesus has power to bring justice there and then, to, to bring destruction there and then. But look at what Jesus says. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him. For all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my Father and He would at once put at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels? But how then would the Scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? Okay, so Jesus says, so I'm not going to bring justice in my time. God will bring justice in His time. But notice what He says there in verse 54. He actually says that Scripture must be fulfilled in this way. So actually, Scripture prophesies that Jesus will be the unjust sufferer who will wait for God's justice. You see, in Isaiah 53, it always speaks of this man who suffers unjustly, who suffers when, when he, he has no cause to suffer, but yet does not strike out. So in verse 7 it says, He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter." And as the sheep before Assyria is silent, so he did not open his mouth. So really, what we see here in David is actually a characteristic of Jesus. Jesus was willing to wait and wait for God's justice. He will not strike out and take action on his own. Now the example of uh, Jesus and the example of David is actually brought to us today. Because as Christians, as people who say that we follow Jesus we must also be willing to wait for God's justice. We are not to take revenge or repay evil for evil. Now, uh, as Christians, I think, it's very clear that we will face opposition and suffering in this world. Not just normal suffering like you a know, cold or you know, stuck in traffic or something, but suffering in terms of opposition from the world. Unjust opposition. We may, may face scorn, Uh, disdain, disapproval, disadvantage in life. And even in some countries, you may face official government persecution. And there is no justice for Christians there. 1 Peter chapter 2 uses the example of Jesus and applies it to ourselves. To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. And again, in Romans chapter 12, it says, Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends. But leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge, and I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will keep burning coals on his head. Do not overcome, be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now I know this is hard words, hard, because it is, it is quite instinctive of us to want to strike back at people, to take revenge, to get back at people when people do wrong to us. But I think that we must also see that there is great comfort in a God who judges in his own time. Now, I have a classmate of mine uh, who's a very, very successful uh, business executive in Australia and he was earning lots and lots of money and he went to theological college and I was very surprised when a a few years later after he'd become quite a uh, I guess, established and a successful pastor, he felt that God was calling him to become a missionary. He's got four kids, I think. So, he went to Kenya. Okay? Uh, now, I'm not sure what we've been following the news, but in Nairobi, the capital of Kenya, uh, the, uh, these Muslim terrorists went there and it's like the Takashimaya, okay? They went there and they basically destroyed the place and they killed many, many people, uh, especially targeting foreigners and Christians. And my friend is a missionary in Kenya and he's based in Nairobi. And he knows people who have been affected by this attack. And so we're praying for him, he writes to me and things. But the temptation for the local population, uh, many Christians, is to take revenge, isn't it? You have people, relatives, family, friends who are killed and you're your instinctive reaction is, okay, let's go and find somebody to kill and to beat up because my brother, my sister got killed in this shopping mall. But, but that's not the right thing to do, isn't it? Because first of all, these other people that you're going to attack are well, not, not the terrorists. And secondly, you'll never find the people who, who, who did it, it. I mean, it's not up to you to take it into your hands to go and be a vigilante and go and kill them. Now, the answer then, for my friend, missionary, is to wait for God's justice because God will bring justice to the people who did this atrocity. It's a source of comfort to know that God, you can wait for God to bring justice. Now, I think it's very clear in the Bible that if there's a crime, we should seek justice for the victim and also for the sake of society. So, in other parts of the Bible... If there's a crime we should report it. If there's a criminal we should catch him or her so that he doesn't or she doesn't hurt other people. I think that what we're looking at here is revenge, isn't it? David will not take revenge, Jesus will not take revenge. We are called not to take revenge. We are to wait for God's justice. Now I think for ourselves, thankfully, we really pray that we will never have a situation like what happened in Nairobi, where you know, terrorists come kill Christians or whatever. But I think, in, in a sense, for ourselves, we too, in our small ways, are tempted to seek revenge. Maybe people insult us in small ways. Maybe people gossip about us in small ways. Maybe people give us the cold shoulder or discriminate us or hurt us in small ways. And maybe because we are Christians and maybe because of our Christian ethos or the way that we live. And the temptation for us is to fight. Evil with evil. People gossip against me, I want to gossip against them. People insult me, I insult them. People disadvantage me, I disadvantage them. I think the Bible is quite clear. We do not repay evil with evil, but evil with good. I was reading a book uh, quite a while ago, and um, I can't remember where the book is, so I can't find the quote again. But, it was a really good quote and it stuck with me. And it was saying that as Christians, as we grow as Christians, and, I, and this is a really good imagery, it's stuck with me, we are called to have soft hearts and thick skins. Okay? And as you grow as a Christian, your heart should get softer and your skin should get thicker. So what it means, soft hearts, is it means that you, you, you have the capacity to love. And as you grow as a Christian, your heart gets softer, you're, you're more able to love people, to care for people, to empathize people. And as you go as a Christian, you grow a thicker skin because you're more able to ex- absorb the, 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 the insults or the gossips or the hurts that people give you. And you're, and you're able to move on, to wait for God's justice or to forgive them. Right? So as you grow as a Christian, soft hearts, thick skin. The problem is that, this writer was saying, is that many Christians that he observed do the opposite. Right? Instead of having softer hearts and thicker skins, they get thicker hearts and softer skin. So what happens is, over time, instead of being able to love more, their hearts become thicker. They, 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 they love less and less. They care less and less. They have less and less empathy. I don't know whether that's a reflection on your own life. I think of maybe if you reflect on your own life. Do you find that you are able to love more and care more and have more empathy as you grow as a Christian, because that's what God wants us to do, isn't it? So we have to, so these people instead of having soft hearts, they have thick hearts, but they have soft skin. So what happens is they become more and more sensitive to perceived hurts, uh, wrongs, and they hold on to those wrongs, and, and you know everything hurts, and they want to strike back all the time. But God tells us from this passage, isn't it? Follow the example of Jesus. Follow the example of David. We do not repay evil with evil, but we repay evil with good. Uh, We wait for God's justice and uh, we leave things with God and uh, that's the way that we are called to follow our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. For he himself suffered while he waited for God's justice. Let's go to God in prayer. Dear Father as we come before you today we truly want to thank you for how you continue to watch over David and how David was willing to entrust himself totally with you that even though he had the opportunity to strike at King Saul but yet he recognised that it was not his role to bring justice on Saul that he was willing to wait for you The ultimate judge to bring justice for the wrongs that Saul had done, especially to him. We pray for ourselves that as we reflect on this passage, we will see how Jesus Himself, in His life, especially at the cross, was willing to entrust Himself to You as well. That though He could have struck back and though He could have fought back, but yet He willingly went to the cross and was willing to entrust Himself on Your justice. We pray for ourselves that we do not repay evil for evil, that we do not seek revenge, that we do not seek to to hit back when we are hit, but rather, dear Father, to be able to be like Jesus, to bear up and to persevere under unjust suffering. We know that it goes against our human nature, but yet, Lord, may we keep telling ourselves that you are a mighty God, who will bring all things to account on the last day, and to entrust all these issues into your hands. And we pray for all these things in name of Jesus Christ. Amen.